Morning, church. Happy Sabbath. It's my pleasure for the third time. This is my third time that I get to introduce Alan, so I get to do it one more time this afternoon. Just to remind you, after potluck, we're heading right back here at 2 o'clock, and he'll uh, finish up his wonderful series for us today. Um, I've shared how long we've known each other. Um, I also have a... um, special thank you that I've, that I always try to give him because I'm not hundred percent sure how it worked out, but, uh, uh, I had one church, uh, where a wife was a member of the church, devout Adventist, and she was married to what I would call a, uh, cultural or a secular Jew. And here I come into this church with my uh, degree in Jewish studies. And he starts asking me all these questions about his Jewish heritage. And um, we got to develop a pretty nice little rapport. Well, he decided to attend a Jewish believers retreat that was held at Pine Springs Ranch. And it was put on by, I forget the name of your organization back then. Um, But what happened was, was that he came back telling me that uh, this was all Alan's doing. I'm not 100% sure that you had arranged the retreat, but you did speak there. Yeah. And... uh, Alan had a uh, tour company there uh, that were advertising trips to the Holy Land. Well, when Reed got back to Willits, he came to me and says, I want to take you to the Holy Land. So my very first Holy Land trip was because you put on that retreat. And uh, just just an aside, he, after, this was like three months in advance, four months in advance, and when we finally knew that we were going, he walked me over uh, during potluck. Because you have to understand, this is, this is a man who this church converged on every Sabbath to try to get him you know, to join. And they tried to study with him, and they tried to do all kinds of things. They'd been doing this to him for years. Okay. And he was just asking me questions, and we just gently talked about uh, uh, Judaism and Christianity and 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 the one tree that it's supposed to be, and, and the root, and, and all of that. And uh, just a couple weeks before uh, the trip, he set me aside and said, if I ask you over there, will you baptize me? So I got to baptize Reed in the Jordan. And you have to understand that whenever you lead a, a trip to the Holy Land, usually the people that are being baptized have already been baptized. They just want to be able to he dipped in the Jordan. Reed actually was baptized into our church for the first time in the Jordan River. And I brought it back, and it's all on, I, it was filmed. I, I, I had somebody film it for me. I brought it back. I set it up in church, and just before church started, I played this little video. And my church just wept, absolutely wept, as we accepted Reed. So we're partners on that one, man. You and me, we should have been able to sign that certificate himself. If you don't know Alan, he's the executive director and general counsel of the Church State Council. He has been since 1994. He's led religious liberty for us in the Pacific Union just as long. Um, and uh, he, has a, he has a message that I have to say, and as I've pointed out to you before, when I've preached about this, when I've talked about this, it's a difficult message for Americans to hear. But it needs to be heard as Adventists. It needs to be heard. And so I'd like to welcome Alan and have him eloquently and gently take us down that journey today.
Greg, that story is such a blessing. Thank you for sharing that. And you know, folks, uh, there's a lesson there. I had no idea in organizing that Jewish retreat, you know, that something like that might come out of it. We have no idea what influence we may have, you know, in serving God and, and what God can do with our influence if we're just willing to be used, do we? We just have no idea. Well, you have a very special pastor. And, and I have to say, um, probably the only one who's ever persuaded me to do four presentations in a single Sabbath. So please do pray for me. <clears throat> I don't know how your week was. I had a pretty tough week. Uh, so, yeah. But I'm really grateful to be with you. I've been to a lot of churches in the Pacific Union over 30 years of service. This is my first time in this church. And I hope it won't be, trust it won't be my last. You know, I, I gave up on California and I came back to Arizona. So we're living now uh, in the Rio Verde foothills. Uh, we're not one of the homes that have hauled water. We have a well. Hallelujah. Uh, I hope that it holds out for a while, you know. Uh, I very much doubt that we have a guarantee of 100 years of water like we're supposed to. But, uh, you know, I don't need 100 years of water, do I? So, <clears throat> you know, I'm glad that you folks have been very um, accepting of Lucas Lucas loves to come to church with me, and, and so I thought I would start this morning by telling you something unique about Lucas that I think is, is just a wonderful sermon illustration. So, you know, we take our pets over to partners. You know, when we travel, that's where we do um, dog sitting over there, and they do the, the rattlesnake training. Lucas is one of the only dogs that has ever failed rattlesnake training. <laughs> now Lucas is very smart and you know when they give him you know they, they expose you to the rattlesnake and they give you a little jolt and you're supposed to learn that that means danger and you go away right and our other dogs got it just like that they had no problem and I was really surprised it really works if anybody here ever had a dog do rattlesnake training Nobody? This is Arizona. What's wrong with you? If you have dogs, you better give them rattlesnake training. You know, now obviously we're out, you know, and, and we haven't seen any snakes on our property, but that doesn't mean that we won't. You know why? And, and Lucas, you know, he's had it like three, four times now. It's not that he doesn't get the message. He's very smart. And, and in fact... He's very unique because the Sharpe breed, by and large, you cannot make them into service animals. Lucas is my wife's service dog. Very rare for a Sharpe to be trained as a service animal. So he's very smart, he's very intuitive, but he's very protective. 
And the reason that he gets closer to the snake when he gets the jolt rather than going away is not because he doesn't know what you're trying to tell him. He knows. He knows that the message is the snake is danger. He gets that very well. But he would give his life to protect us. Lucas is a reminder of the character of Christ. You know, he gave his life to save us. And by the way, I'm absolutely convinced that our pets will be with us in heaven. Anybody here have pets that are very near and dear to your heart? Is there any good reason why a loving God would not restore your pet into your loving arms in the kingdom? There's no good reason why not. I don't have a thus saith the Lord for it. You know, I do know that the picture in Isaiah of the peaceable kingdom is full of, you know, the lion eating straw like the ox and, you know, a little child leading the lion and the lamb together and, you know, it's a beautiful picture of peace and harmony and, and Lucas, um, we've kept him alive. He's going to be 10 uh, in November and so, you know, he doesn't have a lot of years left, but... Um, I'm convinced that he'll be with us in eternity. Uh, so, that's Lucas on the left. Um, if you ever see me on a Zoom, he is often on that sofa behind me. Uh, Cooper on the right, our beloved Boston Terrier, that's another story. But um, the same day, for those of you who heard my presentation about our Supreme Court case last night, the same day that we heard from the court that they, or that they had taken the case, that they were going to hear the case, Cooper got out and got hit by a car. And I was in Las Vegas for preaching. It was Friday the 13th of January. It was the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat all in one day. I'm literally on the phone with my client, Gerald Groff, and we're talking about how, you know, in years to come, people are going to talk about the Groff decision. And I see the phone ring, and uh, someone had found him. And, you know, we had, he had a tag with my number on it. And I had to call my wife. Um, so that was Cooper. Cooper was a love. If you know Boston Terriers, they're just delightful. My sermon title is Finding Jesus in an Age of Counterfeits. Finding Jesus in an Age of Counterfeits. Now I've got to coordinate here between my computer and what's on the screen. You know, we're past the postmodern era. We've, we've wandered our way into a post-truth age of alternative facts. Now, postmodernism, my son who had a great education at UC San Diego. We, we had talked a lot about postmodernism. 
And um, he really helped clarify for me the nature of how reality is understood in postmodernism. It's not that postmodernism rejects the proposition of absolute truth or objective reality. It's just that it understands that we all perceive objective reality through our own subjective lens and that that colors our understanding of truth. So postmodernism doesn't reject the idea of truth, although there's a very strong kind of New Age influence that, well, what is truth? Truth is what's true for you, right? What you believe to be true is your truth. And so truth, in a sense, becomes relative. But now we are living in an age that has gone even beyond the notion of truth being relative, now we are living in a post-truth age of alternative facts. The Oxford Dictionary, it was the word of post-truth, was the word of the year in 2016. And it was defined as relating to and denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. So it takes the old saying, don't bother me with the facts, my mind is made up, to a new level. Now, there are lots of historical examples of alternative facts. I've listed a few of them here. The earth is flat. The second one, slavery is a good thing, is coming back into fashion these days. It's in the curriculum in the state of Florida. Jews are the cause of Germany's troubles. Smoking does not cause cancer. Well, if that were true, my mom would still be alive. My mom died on Rosh Hashanah, um, which means that we get to commemorate her loss twice every year on Rosh Hashanah and on the calendar day, which is a, was September 30, the year that she died. And um, I don't know if Arizonans fall for the notion that there is no such thing as global warming. I rather suspect that after the kind of summer we had, if any of you were here this summer, that you know, if you tempted to believe that there was no such thing as global warming, after 31 days above 110 degrees, you know, that belief might have been shaken a little bit. Um, I'm not here to debate science. Artificial intelligence has come on the scene in a big way. Are we too smart for our own good? Well, most lawyers these days have heard this story about some, maybe it's not fair to call him an idiot lawyer because we've all done stupid things as lawyers, but he, he submitted a brief to the court 
that was created by AI that was full of citations to cases and legal authority that was completely made up. He got sanctioned $5,000 by the court, but not because he submitted the brief, but when he was, when the opposing counsel pointed out to the court that it was, none of it existed, he wouldn't back down. Defended the filing of the brief. Well, that was a fairly modest example of what, there's a new term for that, it's called hallucinations, that the chat GPT, the, the AI is subject to, uh, to giving you, to telling you what you want to hear, right? Um, but there was a more serious example where an attorney, a law professor, who you've probably seen on uh, one of the major television networks, he was identified and accused of sexual harassment. Let's see here. As part of a research study, a lawyer in California had asked the AI chatbot to generate a list of legal scholars who'd sexually harassed someone, and this, this scholar's name was on the list. The chatbot was created by OpenAI and said that he had made sexually suggestive comments and attempted to touch a student while on a class trip to Alaska, citing a March 2018 article in the Washington Post as the source of the information. The problem, no such article ever existed, and there never had been a class trip to Alaska. We're coming into a critical election season, and we have already been warned about AI-created deep fakes. You know what a deep fake is? Deep fake is a video of someone who's real saying things that they didn't say. But they're able to, um, in, in the past, the deep fakes were kind of a mashup of, of words and things done very, very well to put words in somebody's mouth. But now, what AI can do is there's enough data about public figures, they can simply create a video and have the person say whatever they want. So if you hear your favorite politician or the one that you despise saying something outrageous or something that gets your adrenaline going, don't assume that it's real. Don't assume they actually said it. You have to go the next step. I saw a, a, a Twitter feed recently of a particular politician who's prone to saying outrageous things, and it was a clip of this congressperson saying something outrageous, and I could believe that she would have said that. But I didn't bother to check to see, you know, is this bona fide or is this just, you know, made up a deep fake? It didn't matter that much to me. But you have to be very, very careful because we live in an age of counterfeits. 
Now, Jesus warned us that the last days would be an age of counterfeits. Three times in his apocalyptic sermon about what? The last days. He warns us about false Christs and false prophets. Right? The first thing he says in answer to the question, you know, when will these things be? He says... See that no one deceives you. Be careful that nobody leads you astray, because many will come. It's not that there will be counterfeits in the form of other world religions. In the name of, you know, Muhammad or Buddha or, or Hinduism or the New Age or anything else. The counterfeits come in the form of Christianity and in counterfeits of the Messiah. In our lifetime, can you, there have been so many who have falsely claimed to be Christ. Think about it. How many do you, are you aware of? Well, let's see. Remember Jim Jones? You know, don't drink the Kool-Aid, right? Jim Jones claimed to be Christ. Uh, a little bit closer to home, David Koresh claimed to be Christ, right? The leading the so-called wackos from Waco. That also led to a pretty bad end, right? When, um, when I was growing up, I had two family members who joined the Unification Church. Reverend Sun Myung Moon claimed to be Christ. My cousin was literally kidnapped. Um, at, you know, his mom paid for him to be kidnapped and deprogrammed, de-brainwashed to get him out of the Unification Church. It was, you know very coercive kind of brainwashing that got people into it. Any other examples more recently can you think of of false Christs in our midst? I was speaking to the Asian Pacific pastors. I, I, I did not get the name, but apparently there's a prominent Filipino who also claims to be Christ. False Christ, Jesus says, many will come in my name. But it doesn't stop there, because three times, he says, he continues, false prophets will arise and lead many astray. We're going to talk about false prophets in just a minute. And then, again, Jesus says, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, there he is, don't believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the very elect. Right? Great signs and wonders performed by false prophets. Now, 
I don't know if you're aware that Pentecostalism in America has taken a rather interesting turn in a very extreme direction called the New Apostolic Reformation. If you go on Amazon and and Google it, there is a number of books written that take, um, you know, criticize it. But the belief is that there have always been and that there are today all of the gifts of the Spirit operating within the church and all of the offices so that there are apostles and prophets. And this has led to uh, more than a few deciding that they themselves are apostles or prophets. Now, literally, there are several thousand self-proclaimed prophets who all prophesied the outcome of the last two presidential elections. Now, I'm not saying this in order to to take sides politically or to, to delve into politics, but if you think about it, They had a 50-50 chance of getting it right. There are only two guys it could be, right? They got it right the first time. But not the second time. Now to this day, there are millions and millions, a very substantial portion of uh, Americans who identify as Republican who still believe that the wrong guy is in the White House and that the one who really won the election is not in the White House. And one of the reasons I believe that this belief is so widespread is because of the influence of the false prophets. Because after all, if God said it, I believe it. That settles it. So the fact that Lawyers presented claims of of election fraud and what have you in more than 60 courts across our land and they were all rejected. It doesn't matter what the facts are. It doesn't matter what the evidence is or the inability to provide any evidence because we have the influence of the prophets. There's a belief in supernatural signs and wonders. There's an emphasis on a form of spiritual warfare that has gotten to a a rather extreme measure so that anyone who uh, believes differently, worships differently, uh, their politics are different. You know, it's not just a difference of opinion, uh, you know, It's if you believe differently, if if your politics are different, you are demonically influenced or demonically possessed. And so we're starting to see more and more the belief that there is a literal portal above the White House. And those who disagree with the politics of the current administration, they are imagining that 
they are demonically influenced, that the demons use that portal to come down and influence folks making policy in our government. We've never seen uh, spiritual warfare taken to this kind of extreme before. And again, I'm not speaking in terms of any particular uh, political party or policy. I'm talking about what's happening within the American church in fulfillment of prophecy. We're going to look at the theology of dominionism a little more this afternoon. The theology that is really driving conservative politics today. A a warped application of the notion that, uh, you know, God said to Adam and Eve, well, I give you dominion over the earth, right? Well, this is a theology that Christians are the ones who are called to rule. If you were here for Sabbath school, we closed with an understanding that God has not given the church authority to rule in his name. Clearly has, uh, has only given us the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, I will keep going based on what's on my computer if I can't. Okay, we got the slides back up. Now, it's very interesting in light of these developments with the New Apostolic Reformation, take another look at what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount about his professed followers in the last days who are rejected. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, what day? That day, judgment day. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, what is it that they're claiming as their, you know, calling card? Did we not prophesy in your name? Jesus warns us about false prophets. Did we not cast out demons in your name? There's this perverse growth of spiritual warfare, casting out demons, seeing demons everywhere, and and, and doing warfare. This is becoming very prominent in American religion today. Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? And sadly, Jesus says to them, Who are you? I don't know who you are. I never knew who you were. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, of lawlessness. Do you see the connection between the new apostolic reformation and the very things that Jesus tells us are going to be going wrong among his people in the last days?
there's a broader trend. So the New Apostolic Reformation is kind of the spiritual soul and driving force along with dominionism. But much more broadly, Christian nationalism has uh, profound, broad impact on American life today. Catherine Stewart is a writer, an investigator, um, not a scholar, but she has spent years visiting churches, megachurches, talking, interviewing people, and experiencing the reality of what's happening. And her um, very profound book, probably the best read on Christian nationalism, is called The Power Worshippers. And the title really speaks volumes. We're going to look at a little more of what she has to say this afternoon, but just to give you a, a core understanding of, well, what is Christian nationalism? She writes that it's not a religious creed, it's a political ideology. It promotes the myth, we talked about this myth this morning in Sabbath school, that the American Republic was founded as a Christian nation. It asserts that legitimate government rests not on the consent of the governed. Isn't that, you know, high school civics 101? Very basic, right? The consent of the go government of, by, and for the people, as Abraham Lincoln said in the Gettysburg Address. That's what our government rests on, the consent of the government, but not to Christian nationalism. Uh, nationalists, their view of government is that it should be based on adherence to the doctrines of a specific religious, ethnic, and cultural heritage. Christian, obviously, evangelical Christian. It demands that our laws be based not on the reasoned deliberation of our democratic institutions, you know, politics is compromise. You win some, you lose some. You know, you've got to take account of a lot of different interests in order to craft policy and legislation. We've been involved in legislation for the 30 years. I've been here at the Pacific Union. That's one of, one of the things that we do. It demands that our laws be based not on the reasoned deliberation of our democratic institutions, but on particular idiosyncratic interpretations of the Bible, their view of the Bible. Its defining fear is that the nation has strayed from the truths that once made it great. Sadly, what religious liberty has come to mean for too many Americans is a freedom to believe as I do. So my way or the highway approach to religious freedom. I didn't hear any chuckles at all when I said that. Did, did you get what I was getting at? You know, yeah, you have religious freedom. You have the freedom to believe what I believe. But not the freedom to believe differently. We saw this slide this morning. And I repeat it because... The notion of this merger of church and state, of Christianity dominating, um, it's ancient. It's nothing new. 
Christian imperialism is not Christian. It's when Christians become anti-Christian by embracing the offer of empire, which Jesus rejected. When was Jesus offered the, the empires of this world? That was the third temptation, right? The beginning of his ministry, he's fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. And the final temptation, Satan comes to him and offers all of the kingdoms of the world if he'll only bow down and worship Satan. And of course, Jesus rejects the offer. But the church in America today, as the church did throughout European history and Christian civilization, the church is accepting the offer of empire and pursuing political power. And it's what led to the doctrine of discovery, what led to how Christian Europe related to um, indigenous peoples in the United States and, and many other parts of the world. It is the dragon heart of the second beast that would use political power in an oppressive way. Ellen White had enormous insight into these things. I have a number of favorite Ellen White quotes. This one is taken from Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, where she's discussing the passage where Jesus tells us, you know, not to, not to sweat about the speck in our brother's eye, you know, but to deal with the beam, the log in our own eye, right? And, and she applies it in a unique way. And she, she says that this is what the church has done whenever she has lost the grace of Christ. Finding herself destitute of the power of love, she has reached out for the strong arm of the state to enforce her dogmas and execute her decrees. Here is the secret, she says, of all religious laws that have ever been enacted. And the secret of all persecution from the days of Abel to our own time. Christ does not drive, but draws men unto him. The only compulsion he employs is the constraint of love. That is the simplest, most basic explanation of our understanding of religious liberty, right? And you think, well, other Christians understand that, right? No. We'll get into that. But they don't. When the church begins to seek for the support of secular power, it is evident she is devoid of the power of Christ, the constraint of divine love. This is the principle we need to understand. We either seek and move as the church with the gift of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. Or we have abandoned the power of the Holy Spirit and we seek a substitute in political power. America's going down the tubes morally. We need a law. No, we don't need a law. 
we need reformation and revival. You know, it's not fair to blame our politicians, our government, or Hollywood for moral decline in society. It's not Hollywood's job to be the guardian of public morality, is it? They're a business. If they are selling violence and sex and immorality, there is one reason and one reason only. It's because we're buying it. It's not their job to police public morality. There is only one institution in American life that is responsible for the moral and spiritual well-being of the community. And that institution is the church. So if there is this tremendous moral decline, you know, that everybody's, you know, tearing their hair out over, oh, you know, we're going to, you know, where in a handbasket and, you know, we need to do something, you know, look what's happening in our public schools. Oh, we've kicked God out of the public schools and we've, you know, done all these terrible things. Well, no, it's not the job of the public school to teach our kids respect and, and to worship God. It's the job of the church. It's the job of our families, right? And by the way, can the government, can the Supreme Court, can the school board tell God where to go and kick him out of public school? That's the silliest thing that I have ever heard just about. Now, I went to a public law school. And you know, when I took exams, what do you think I did before the exams? So the old saying is, as long as there are math tests, there's prayer in public schools. The school board can't kick, the Supreme Court can't kick God out of school. But it's neither is it the job of the school to inculcate the faith. The, what we're seeing in American life today is an apostate church that has lost the power of the Holy Spirit and is seeking a substitute in political power. Ellen White called it. Now, let's talk for a minute about the theology that's driving this apostasy. It is first and foremost rooted in a form of Calvinism. So in, in this idea of Calvinism, let's see, Pastor, you're my friend, you're on this side of the church. So you guys over here, you're the elect. You're the chosen. You didn't do anything to deserve it, but you're the ones who know God's will. And you have the authority to make the laws to vote, to decide the policies. You know, this is a Christian nation and you get to call the shots. You guys over here, too bad, so sad. You're just the chaff that was created for the fires of you know where and you're going to burn forever and ever and you don't count. You don't count. We don't want you to vote. 
You don't know God's will. And by the way, can the clay say to the potter, you know, who makes a pot and then smashes it, you know, well, can you compl- do you have any right to complain? No, you don't. Modern day Calvinism does not believe that Jesus died to save everybody. It is exclusive. Jesus died to save the elect. Now, you combine that with the prosperity gospel, and you've got a really deadly brew. The prosperity gospel has swept our nation's megachurches like nothing else. The prosperity gospel is great if you are a upwardly mobile uh, American where your mortgage is paid, you're driving a late model car, um, your kids aren't on drugs, you know, or suicidal or something, and everybody's healthy and, you know, you're financially afloat. Great. You have faith. You are blessed. You're doing well because God is prospering you because of your faith. But what happens when your wife gets cancer? What happens when your kid is on drugs, is an addict, and, or, or, or suicidal, right? Or, God forbid, what happens when your kid is gay? Does that mean that it's because you don't have faith? How cruel is that? You know, if, if you have health issues, if, you know, we, we had a big financial turnaround a few years ago. You know, what if your business went bankrupt? What if you, your house got foreclosed on? Well, too bad, it's your own fault. It's because you didn't have faith. It's one of the cruelest teachings imaginable. It's, it's kind of what I used to say, you know, when I would debate with my mom, you know, she was very much, you know, Jewish mother, product of her times, kind of embraced the new age, and she'd talk about karma. And the idea of karma is, you know, what goes around comes around, you get what you deserve. And I would say to her, well, that's fine. You may be satisfied getting what you deserve. I get grace. With grace, I get better than I deserve. Right? With God's grace, we know that we're not getting what we deserve. We're getting, we're forgiven. And we're accepted. And it's not about being deserving. But, you know, karma, again, karma seems very attractive if you are an upwardly mobile American and you're prospering relatively, you know, life is good, well then, great. You know, you're getting what you deserve. and, 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 And everything is copacetic. But if you're a lower caste Indian, you know, and your karma is that you're condemned to a life of misery for untold lifetimes of reincarnation over and over again, you know, uh, karma, 
Karma's not so great. The American Jesus is rooted in this exclusivism of Calvinism. And the more that those who imagine that they are the called and chosen, the more power they get politically, the more they believe that it's God's blessing. And of course, um, there is this radical form of Pentecostalism that is very dangerous because it it substitutes one's own impressions and motives and desires for the leading of the Holy Spirit. And that's something that none of us are immune from, by the way. You don't have to be Pentecostal to confuse the inner voices and your own motives. You know, the heart is deceitful, isn't it? That's what scripture says. The heart is deceitful. So, the American Jesus is exclusive. You know, I don't think that most American Christians conceive, most evangelicals conceive of their Jesus as a hater. But I will tell you that what the sociologists have found is that the the fastest growing segment of the American religious community are those who have rejected religion, who will check the box none when asked their religious affiliation. And the most common explanation they will give is that the Jesus of the American church is, is not an attractive guy, that they reject the politics of the church and the Jesus of the church is exclusive and he's, you know, the white American Jesus. He hates people who aren't like him. You know, when I was a Jewish kid growing up in New York City, There were two Jesuses that I knew about. There was the black Jesus. I don't know if any of you remember. Some of you are as old or older than I am. I don't know if you remember, the black Jesus had a big fro. You know, he's kind of the black power Jesus. Now, the white Jesus, he had shoulder length, kind of dirty, light brown hair, and wore flowing white robes and sandals. So he was cool. He was a hippie like we were. And I was reading uh, an author writing about going in search of the American Jesus, and he found quite a few. He was surprised. You know, in Greenwich Village, he found a gay Jesus in drag. In South Central L.A., it was the gangbanger Jesus, you know, with the, the baggy clothes and, you know, several other examples. And the light bulb went off. Because for a long time, you know, I I asked questions. The first angel's message expresses the final proclamation of the gospel to all humanity before the coming of Christ in, in terms of a return, a call to worship the creator in the hour of his judgment. 
Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come, and reverence and worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of water, right? And I would ask myself, why is this final call to worship expressed this way? And when I began to realize that there are all of these different Jesuses, and I realized that we all tend to create Jesus in our own image. That's when I realized why it's so important to call people back to the worship of the Creator, to abandon all of these Jesuses that we create in our own image. The Jesuses we create in our own image have no power to save us, do they? Is there an Adventist Jesus? What is the Adventist Jesus like? For a long time, all, all I came up with was that the Adventist Jesus obviously didn't eat that fish after his resurrection on the beach because he must have been a vegan, right? But I finally, I finally got something a little, little, maybe a little closer to home because, see, the, Ad, the Adventist Jesus was not feeding the 5,000. He was stuck up in a pew somewhere debating the finer points of theology. rather than being out there ministering to the crowds. That's the Adventist Jesus. You know, I've run that by a few pastors. Nobody's ever called me that, you know, somehow I, I've got it wrong. You know, it, I don't have to be right. The question is, do we create our own Jesus? A Jesus that, you know, he's doesn't really rock the boat, right? Our Jesus takes us the way we are and doesn't expect us really to change, and um, everything's copacetic. God is calling us to return to the worship of the Creator, the one who can recreate us in His own image. Now, for a long time, I have observed that the American church no longer believes in the Sermon on the Mount, that their doctrine and belief is apostate and has really abandoned the Christ of Scripture. This book was just published by a very prominent a former Southern Baptist leader, he left the Southern Baptist Church, Russell Moore is not some radical, some, you know, fringe guy. You know who he is? Anybody? See, this shows just what kind of a bubble we're living in as Adventists. Russell Moore is the editor of Christianity Today magazine. The main you know, kind of the mainstream evangelical magazine in America for decades, right? He published this book, Losing Our Religion, an altar call for evangelical America, and it just was released a few months ago. 
and he was interviewed on NPR, and he was asked about, you know, why he thought the church was in so much trouble. I'm going to read you what he said. Well, it was the result of having multiple pastors tell me essentially the same story about quoting the Sermon on the Mount parenthetically in their preaching. Turn the other cheek. To have someone come up after and to say, where did you get those liberal talking points? And what was alarming to me is that in most of these scenarios, when the pastor would say, I'm literally quoting Jesus Christ, the response would not be, I apologize. The response would be, yes, but that doesn't work anymore. That's weak. And when we get to the point where the teachings of Jesus himself are seen as subversive to us, then we're in a crisis. Before I heard about Russell Moore's publishing of the book, oh, I think I had the slide created for our camp meeting sermons a year ago. My observation about the American church is that it's a Christian religion without the biblical Jesus, without Christ's teachings, no beatitudes, no blessed are the poor, blessed are the peacemakers, love your enemy, love your neighbor. Certainly no beating your swords into plowshares. The Jesus of the American church wouldn't be satisfied with a whip, lousy whip to clean out the tables of the money changers. The modern American Jesus would surely have a um, semi-automatic rifle. I, I don't mean to be taking sides on the issue of guns here. I'm just making an observation. I'm not trying to get political on you. And so, you know, what I've been saying is that what we have is an idolatrous patriotism that confuses American power with the kingdom of God. What we have is the very religion that Revelation 13 describes would be the religion that we would see the, apost the Christian apostasy of the last days is the dominant religion in American life today. Now, by contrast, I'm reminded of what Jesus describes as the character of his authentic faith community. And we know that this was a Jewish mother who came to Jesus because what did she want for her boys? Not to be a doctor and a lawyer. That wasn't even good enough. She wanted them to sit at the right hand and the left hand when Jesus got into his kingdom. You know, the right and left hand of God Almighty. Nothing else is good enough for my boys. At the risk of being irreverent, there's an old joke about how we know that Jesus was Jewish. 
His mother thought he was God. So this is a Jewish mother who wants the best for her boys. And Jesus says to her, you don't know what you want. You don't know what you're asking for. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But this is not the way it is with me and my people. He says, it's not going to be this way among you. Whoever would be great among you should be what? A servant. I was, I've been thinking about, we're, we're going to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the Church Day Council next year. We had a wonderful banquet for the 50th. And I want to honor some folks, and I was thinking about, well, you know, what kind of award, you know, do you give to people who have given such wonderful service that you want to recognize? You know, defender of liberty, champion of liberty, you know, all of these sort of, you know, power words that, that we love to use, right? I decided that the best word that I could use is to honor them as a servant of liberty, as a servant of liberty. God has called us to humble service, and that is our greatness, isn't it? Not, he has not called us to exercise power and authority over anybody. But he's called us to serve. And the greatness is in our service. Now, I see parallels between the modern American church and what Isaiah was prophesying about here in Isaiah 58. So I'm going to kind of bring it, and where I want to bring this uh, kind of back to focus is the finding Jesus part, is to contrast the apostasy and, and how it is that Jesus describes the authentic community and what it means to worship the real Jesus, right? So, in Isaiah 58, Isaiah is describing a faith community that is very religious. They fast regularly. They engage in all kinds of you know, religious activity, but something is wrong. And what is it? In the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. I'm proud to be part of a workers' rights community. I see it as biblical to work to relieve oppression of workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. What kind of religion is this? that they're being super religious, and let, yet how are they relating to one another? Quarreling and fighting and violence. He says, fasting like this, you, I'm not going to listen to your prayers if, if you carry on this way, right? 
And they're very religious. They're humbling themselves. They're bowing down like a reed and spreading sackcloth and ashes. And they're making such a show of being so religious. And God's like, ah. This is not what it's about. He says, isn't this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? If you take away the yoke, from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. Isaiah is pretty clear. Religious conformity is not enough. It doesn't cut it. A narcissistic emphasis on self, thinking that Self-denial is how we draw near to God. That's not what true religion is all about. False fasting is a, a cover for injustice, for economic oppression of workers. It's love of neighbor through acts of compassion that shows evidence of true religion. A religion that cares about the condition of society, about the have-nots, about the oppression of workers. The promises of God to rebuild the ancient ruins, to repair the breach, belongs to the church that gets what true fasting is all about. And the Sabbath is part of it. And by the way, when Isaiah says that we turn our foot from the Sabbath, from seeking our own pleasure on the Sabbath day, it doesn't mean that the Sabbath is a sad day and that we can't enjoy the day. It's in contrast with the false fasting that is seeking their own pleasure. And how are they seeking their own pleasure? By quarreling and fighting and oppressing workers and, and pursuing evil motives. The first thing it says about the Sabbath is to call the Sabbath a delight. It is a day of joy, not a day that our kids are just watching the clock to wait till it's over so they can have fun again. That's not what Sabbath is. Isaiah says that the true fast is to relieve suffering, to release oppression, to destroy the yoke, the bondage of sin, and, and the, the bondage, a yoke. What is a yoke? A yoke that is, is an instrument of control for oxen to plow the fields, right? And one of the great sins of, of humanity is the desire to control others, right? And we have to have it our way. It's my way or the highway. Well, Jesus says that our true faith in God is to release this yoke, to set 
the captives free, to stop trying to control others and to release them from the controlling power of of sin, for one, but then there's a different yoke that we are to introduce people to, right? Even as we release them from every other yoke that oppresses and binds them up, Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The real Jesus is the one whose yoke we want to live under his leadership, under his control. Amen? Because he is gentle and lowly in heart, and he will give us rest for our souls. All of the counterfeits, none of them can give us rest. None of them can give us peace in our souls. Jesus gives us his peace the real peace, the peace that passes understanding. I want to invite you today to take up the yoke of Christ, to let go of the desire to control others, to let go of the need for power, and to understand that the only power we need is the power of the Holy Spirit, the power that gives us the ability to love not just our neighbor, but to love our enemies even, which is something that is beyond the power of, of our, natural li- our natural hearts, right? Right. <laughs>